0: I'm going to go. Okay, this time I'm going to do it, but a little bit more Star Trek.
1: (laughs) Okay, cool.
0: Or do we need to reach for the
1: stars?
0: That is gold. Hi,
1: I'm Lursa Mattinga.
0: And I'm Gail Galley.
1: And this is An Idiot's Guide to Saving the World, the podcast for anyone who cares about building a better world but doesn't know where to start.
0: We are on a mission to get everyone on board to achieve the global goals. Now, there are 17 goals that the world promised to deliver by 2030. And although we are nearly halfway to the deadline, we are not halfway to achieving them.
1: So let's get to work on ending poverty, protecting our forests and providing clean energy for everyone. All the little big things.
0: I mean, absolutely all of them. In this episode, we have a look at a few of the new technologies that might just save the day.
1: Mm -hmm. We're joined today by the broadcaster and writer Gabrielle Walker, who knows all about the mysterious world of carbon capture.
2: It's called direct air capture, where it's big fans, they blow air over kind of capture devices, and then you inject it down into rocks deep underground. It's just sort of reversing the valve. You can put it back where the oil and gas came from, where the CO2 should never have come out from in the first place. We're also going to speak with Vaitia
0: Cowan, who is one of the lead players in green hydrogen. So we'll ask her if green
3: hydrogen will make it okay to fly again. When you look at hydrogen, it's the lightest gas ever. And it's really good for long distances and long-term storage. So it's a perfect alternative gas for aviation. Or do we
1: need to reach for the stars? We'll speak to Tammy Ma, the lead scientist on the experiment to harness nuclear fusion. She actually makes planets in her lab on a Tuesday.
4: Well, I mean, any day of the week, any day. I mentioned that we generate stars, essentially, you know, in the laboratory. We can also generate astrophysical phenomena like supernova. So in this episode,
0: we are talking about clean energy and also innovation. So in a nutshell, is technology going to save the day? Are we going to have breakthroughs that mean we can have all the energy we want without polluting the atmosphere?
1: Uh, I think this episode is about 15 years late for me uh, because I come from a country where we have something that sounds very fancy called load shedding. Do you know load shedding, Gail?
0: Load shedding, did you say? I I heard something else. Yes, it's
1: not a polite way of saying that you're going to the loo, but we are in, we are in shit We have rolling blackouts back home. We have scheduled rolling blackouts that we live by. Nothing makes South African happier than the sound of the microwave beeping back to life. It's like a (laughs) joyous, like your heart flutters when you hear beep. It's like, oh, (laughs) lights for two hours. But is that because you
0: haven't got enough?
1: It's complicated, but it's essentially just bad management. It's just like horrible management of energy.
0: Well, we have plenty, but it's costing a fortune Mm. because of the conflict in Ukraine and rationing around Russian energy. Our energy prices have literally gone through the roof. I mean, we have not had a hot shower in our house for months now because my husband's insisting on keeping it down. Our daughter is putting herself up for adoption. Uh, It's mad. (laughs) So we we need to look at clean energy for all different reasons.
1: So we're luckily today talking about fixing the energy problem.
0: We are. And it's not just fixing it because we can't afford it or because it keeps running out in your country. We're fixing it for the future because the way we did used to produce energy and the way we rely on it now has just these terrible consequences of pollution and, you know, extraction, as well as the carbon emissions. So not only does the energy of the future have to produce energy to feed, what, like 8 billion people's needs, but it also needs to do it in a way that is sustainable, like it's going to last and it's not going to mess up the planet.
1: I'm I'm looking forward to talking to people uh, today because our people are coming with actual green solutions, the kind of solutions where we won't necessarily have to find more solutions for the solutions later because we forget that we're living in the solutions that we had before, but now we're living in the problems from those solutions. And we need to start looking at the actual effects of the progress that we make and not just the positive sides of it. It's like, oh, but what does it do negatively and is it worth it?
0: And we're going to zoom in on two global goals at once, number seven, clean energy, and number nine, industry and innovation. So what that means is we all need clean, affordable energy. And to make it a reality, we really need the innovation to get it right now, but also in the future. And the thing I'm so excited about in this episode, we're going to talk to three of the world's leading climate tech breakthrough pioneers who are all, ba-ba-ba, women,
1: Yep. get in some of whom are talking about clean air travel, saying crazy words like that. Some of them are even crazier scientists who are making stars. (laughs) And um, they're going to help us about this whole net zero situation and how we're going to make this green utopia that we're hoping for in the future. But the question really is like, who's going to be helping us clean up the mess we've
0: already
1: made?
0: We have Gabrielle Walker coming up. So she has devoted all of her work to finding out how we can capture the dirty carbon in the air and keep it out of there. And to start with, I just wanted to ask her, what exactly does carbon
2: capture mean? So starting with carbon capture, I don't really like that term because it's too vague and it only describes the first part of it, which is capturing the carbon. It does not describe what you do with it afterwards. And and what you do with it is a really important thing. So what I'm actually working on, I call it carbon removals, carbon removals. It's removing CO2 from the atmosphere in various different ways and putting it somewhere where it stays. And the miraculous thing about this is that there's so many places on Earth that you can actually store carbon. So you can store it in trees, you can store it in soils, you can store it in building materials, you can store it in rocks on the surface, you can put it into rocks underground, you can inject it into volcanoes. There's loads of ways that we can actually store the CO2 that we've been putting into the sky and actually clean up our own mess at the same time.
0: It sounds so fun. It sounds like you're one of those 70s cook show hosts talking about all the fun you can have with broccoli. You know, you can put it in pies, you can put it in flats. That's why I love talking to you about this, because you just make it sound so accessible and common sense and obvious. You mentioned trees. And I really would like your take on this because there's been quite a recent debunk, hasn't there? A scandal that says all the carbon offsetting, there's another piece of jargon, the whole market of let's store carbon by protecting trees, planting trees, buying up pieces of land to to restore, has just been sort of revealed to be hokey. Is that true? Have we really messed that
2: one up? Just zone in on trees for a second for us and help us understand. The thing that's gone wrong in the offsets and the trees is that there's been an attempt to sort of say, you know what, if that forest gets chopped down, it's going to put a load of CO2 in the air. So you can put your CO2 in the air if you protect the forest and stop it being chopped down. And then that's kind of an equivalent. So it's all right, you can carry on polluting. And that's kind of the principle of offsetting. And it's not a good principle because what we should be doing is you stop polluting and we don't chop the forest down. It's not an either or. And this is where carbon removals comes in. It's a very different story. Because if you think about it, if I put a ton of CO2 in the air and I pay you not to put your ton of CO2 in the air. My ton is still there. I haven't neutralized it. I've just kind of shifted the problem onto you. But if I put a ton of CO2 in the air and I pay somebody to remove it, what goes up comes down and you've neutralized your own emissions. This is a way that you can take responsibility for your own emissions. You reduce everything you possibly can and anything you haven't reduced, you remove. And we can actually give the world a chance to heal. I want
1: to stick on this exciting part of it because we're always like hit by the negative of what, you know, carbon emissions are. You, you only see, you know, Michael Jackson's earth song playing in your head and seeing the smoke and the death and everything. But it seems as if there is potential that is actually exciting about what we could do with carbon. And that it's not just this poison in the air, but it's actually a potential resource possibly Can you talk more about those so we can uh, be less bummed?
2: (laughs) I can certainly do that. But what I would say is there are solutions right across the board. People, when I talk to them about carbon removal, say, oh, do you mean trees? Or do you mean fantastic machines that vacuum CO2 out of the sky? And And it's kind of green versus chrome, nature versus tech. I don't really like that versus because, in fact, there's loads of different ways that you can do carbon removals. And most of them involve some combination of natural resources and human ingenuity. And I think, you know, people who are like machines go one way, people who are like trees go the other way, and it misses out on everything that can happen in the middle. So you can take um, trees and turn them into building material, fantastic, gorgeous materials, not old heavy wood. It's, it's cross laminated timber. It can be bent in fantastic shapes. It's fireproof. It's a really wonderful material. And that's great because it does three things. It removes concrete, which is a, a very high emissions material. It stores carbon and they are really gorgeous buildings. So that's a a great way to do it. You can also do things like you can take the wood and you can burn it in the absence of oxygen and you create something called biochar. It looks a bit like charcoal. If you put it on fields, it improves the quality of the soil and it, it, it reduces the amount of watering that you need to do. It can reduce the amount of fertilizer that you need, but it also locks up the carbon. So if you can do that on fields around the world, then you've got something that can really go to scale. And then you can also do something, this is really clever, it's it's called enhanced weathering, sorry for the technical term, but it's really, it's accelerating a natural process naturally over thousands of years, rocks on the surface of the earth kind of gradually suck up CO2 and turn into different rocks. But if you grind them up really small and you spread them on fields, you accelerate that to just a few years. So if you spread that on fields, it takes minerals to the fields, it's good for the soil, and then you start to take up a lot of CO2. You can also do that in the ocean. So if you put the, that ground up rock into the ocean, you can actually do two things. One of them is you can take up CO2 in the seawater. And the other is that you actually combat something which is a side effect, a very bad side effect of climate change, which is uh, ocean acidification. Mm. One of my favorites, it's not really very useful, but it is very shiny. There's, there's this one group making what they call sky diamonds, where they're taking CO2 from the air and they're turning it into diamonds so that you don't have to mine them. Teeny tiny amounts of CO2 stored. But it shows you that you can do special things with carbon dioxide if you get more creative.
1: So what about the big machines that we hear about, those big scale carbon capture machines? How do they capture it? How how does that work?
2: I mean, a lot of the carbon removals, the big scale ones, are kind of a bit like a kind of waste removal. It's called direct air capture where it's big fans. They blow air over kind of capture devices and then you inject it down into rocks deep underground either I, I kind of like the poetry of this. It's, it's just sort of reversing the valve. You can put it back where the oil and gas came from, where the CO2 should never come out from in the first place. Or you can inject it into volcanoes, into volcanic rock, and then it just it just uh, just mineralizes within a year or two and turns into solid. So it's never going to come out. And I, I wanted to tell you about that one because I went to visit two incredible places. One was in Iceland, but which is the first commercial scale attempt to do that. And I went to see the place where they were doing the, the, the capturing. And I also went to see the place where they were injecting it. And it looked so simple and so obvious. It was just a little hut and it was just an injection well, just like, and, and, and it was just so obvious. It's not complicated. It's not really fantastic or futuristic. It made me think, why aren't we doing this everywhere? And why haven't we been doing this all along? I mean, that's
0: mind blowing. Why is that not scaling like? crazy
2: it should be and I think you know what it felt like so I was there on my own I went along and I saw this little hut and I touched it and it, it felt like it felt like touching the first iPhone <laughs> because it, it, it's so simple it's so obvious it's beautifully designed but also they're going to be everywhere they're going to have to be everywhere and so you say why isn't it happening and in a way because a few years ago people weren't even thinking about this or understanding that it could be done But there's still a lot of people that are afraid of it. There are still people who say, well, if you do that, doesn't that mean we won't bother reducing? So we'll just assume we can remove it all. And there's also people who are kind of afraid of machines or who who think it's going to be too expensive. And I think back to when we were thinking about solar power and wind power and people used to say, well, that's never going to happen at the scale that we need. It's way too expensive. And now... It just feels obvious. Uh-huh. And so I'm working on two things. I'm working with a not for profit called Rethinking Removals and also a for profit company called Curate. And both of them are designed to try and help build this entire market, this entire industry, and take it from where it is now to where the iPhones are.
1: I'm still stuck on this hut. Um, in my head, I'm just like, what?
0: The iPhone hut. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, let's keep on the iPhone comparison. You know, we think about the very, very early days of communication. It was only governments and then it became switchboards and then it became landlines and that was thrilling and then it became mobiles. And no doubt, within a few minutes, it'll just become kind of mind transfer. (laughs) (laughs) Can you see the hut in the not-too-distant future, maybe in our lifetimes, when it's almost a domestic
2: thing like solar panels have become? Part of the point about the huts is that you have to have somewhere where there's actual storage. You have to either have a place where you can... Inject underground whether geology is right or whether there's volcanic activity. So, most places, you know, lots of places in Iceland can do it, but not necessarily in London. But there's lots of different carbon removal techniques that you can do in cities. So, one way, of course, is to have more green spaces and to have more wooden building material. But I think there's going to be more and more of these kind of smaller scale technologies that can capture the CO2 and find somewhere to put it, even within cities. Solar power. Took 30 years to get from a kind of good idea to something that was actually scaled and and low enough cost. We have to do that with carbon removals in 10 years. So it's not even a kind of in our lifetime. By 2030, this is going to have exploded or we all go down in flames. Do you think the main, you know, the drag factors here are mechanical,
0: as in cost, science, geology, like you were saying, or are they emotional, as in people think if we let it out, that we could take it out of the atmosphere? That means that people will just carry on emitting it like crazy and therefore... So what is it? Is it a mechanical problem or, a,
2: or an emotional problem to scaling it? You can say that it's mechanical and that we need much more innovation. You can say that it's legislative and that we need much more policy. But the real, if I had to pick one of those, I'd say it's the same thing as everything else. It's all about mindset and narrative. You know, I, I worry about how in, in climate we've gone from kind of denialism to doomism like it's not happening or we can't do anything without stopping to wipe our feet in the bit in between, which is where we actually fix it. And I, I also, I worry about things like, I call them exclusivism or purism. Exclusivism is my solution and not yours. And purism is, it has to be pure, it has to be perfect. It has to be doing this stuff together. And there's going to be trade-offs. It's not like everyone can dance around a fire and sing Kumbaya. But broadly speaking, if, if we all have our eyes on the prize, of 1.5 degrees, keeping the temperature as low as we possibly can and then reversing it. If we have our eyes fixed on that prize, then we'll find the good solution of how everything should fit together. But if we sit there saying, I don't like your solution, it might hurt mine, then we're going to be in even bigger trouble. I I call it a circular firing squad where everyone in in the climate space are all standing around in a circular firing squad and shooting each other. And in the meantime, the world's burning and we can't really afford that anymore. So there are solutions for reducing emissions, there is solar, there's wind, there's electric vehicles, there's green hydrogen. There's so many different things that we can actually do to stop making the problem worse. And I think with carbon removals, it's as well as stopping the problem getting worse, we can also start to make it better. So that's where the two go hand in hand. And it's definitely not either or, it's both reductions and removals. And when they work together, we can actually solve this. So it has to be collaborative and it has to be smart and it has to work with nature. And it has to work with human nature. And if we put all those things together, we will fix it.
0: I mean, she's just so positive, isn't she?
1: How does she do that? I mean, this is the big monster, uh, the carbon, carbon, carbon. And she somehow still sees a world where we, we, we get this right, which is, you know, if she sees positivity, I think we should all just get on board and do our bit.
0: I've come across the Circular Firing Squad narrative so often. Um, and also for a while, I think carbon capture was seriously resisted because people feared that the emitters, you know, the oil industry, all of us actually would stop worrying about our emissions because the giant hoovers are going to suck it up. Yeah. But I think what she's saying there is balanced. but it's both. We have to reduce and we have to remove. But she just sounds like it's super possible.
1: I'd like to also introduce the idea of work with nature. I think a lot of the time we're trying to save nature like it's going to be the thing that's way over there the thing that we're going to quickly go save and then come back to our normal lives. But it's like, we're part of it. We're saving ourselves and nature. So we've got to work with nature and our nature too. You know, we can't just say humans, stop humaning. That, that we're no longer doing. We're going to be <laughs> robots from now on and live this robotic life. It's, you have to remember that human beings are feeling creatures and we need, we need our internet. We need our, uh, whatever, whatever it is. So it's like, I think we're smart enough to find solutions that are, working within the complexity of life.
0: Let's move on to our next guest in the same vein.
1: It's great that we're dealing with the whole carbon issue, but we are still living in a world that needs energy. So we're going to have to really get into green energy. And it's really exciting that we got to talk to somebody who is in that space, talking green hydrogen, uh, which makes completely carbon-free energy.
0: You're talking about Vitya Cowan, who is one of the co-founders of Inapta. The cool thing about what she's doing is that she's not just making green hydrogen, she's making it using clean energy. Because you can make hydrogen, but if you're burning oil to do it, it's kind of pointless.
1: Yes. And scaling it is an important thing. And that's the exciting part because they are making these little devices called the electrolyzers. It is the little machine that helps green hydrogen happen. And this little electrolyzer is stackable. They've gotten it all the way down to like the size of a little microwave, essentially. So think of them as like solar panels, how you can have one or an entire field. So first, let's get a bit of a chemistry lesson because, you know, I'm speaking very generally about this. Here's Vitea.
3: So hydrogen is the first element in our table, and it comes in different forms. It can be in gas, it can be liquid. And one of the most common places where you can find hydrogen is in water right, because water is made of hydrogen and oxygen. And most of the hydrogen actually that you will produce is made from splitting water. Hydrogen is already being used in many industrial processes. The challenge now, and actually it's also an opportunity, is to switch to making sustainable hydrogen, renewable hydrogen made from renewable energy sources by using an electrolyzer to decarbonize all of our sectors. So whether it's with hydrogen cars, container ships or trucks or planes or trains, or even just those hard to decarbonize sectors, like all those industrial processes. Think about like making steel, making cement, making glass. They use a lot of energy and that energy is usually not gonna come from electricity or batteries, for example. And they really require an alternative fuel to create the reaction that they need. So as an electrolyzer producer, We want to support any industries who want to switch from fossil fuels to a clean gas, because by using green hydrogen, there will be no CO2 emissions in the consumption of the green hydrogen. And we are even working towards actually reducing our own footprint in the production of our systems. So the factory that we are building in Germany will be completely powered by renewable electricity. And so that means that the carbon footprint of our products themselves will be
1: Zero. Sorry, I'm not as smart as I look. The glasses are—they don't even work. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't take a lot of energy though to get hydrogen, especially like if you you splitting water. Is I'm like it's literally called a hydrogen bond, and if I remember anything from high school, is that is your strongest bond. So does that not take an immense amount of energy then? And where are you getting? Where do we get that energy to get the hydrogen?
3: So, of course, you will need electricity to create the green hydrogen if you're going to use electricity to split water into hydrogen and oxygen. So you will have um, energy consumption. And so anything you can electrify, you should electrify, right? If there is an application that can use a battery, then go for it. Yeah. However, there are applications that cannot be electrified. If you wanted to fly, for example, an 80-seater plane with a battery, Batteries are really, really heavy. You would need a battery to fly the battery itself, and then you would need more batteries to fly people. It just (laughs) wouldn't work, right? Because it just would be too heavy. Whereas when you look at hydrogen, it's the lightest gas ever, and it's really good for um, long distances and long-term storage. So it's a perfect alternative gas for aviation. Actually, this uh, January, end of January 2023, there was a successful test flight of a of a hydrogen airplane. Wow, And it's fascinating when you think about the use of green hydrogen for aviation, because you think about, okay, so where are these planes going to be refueled? And so they're going to be refueled at the airport. And the hydrogen made from renewable electricity can be created at the airport or just nearby the airport. And so when you think about the supply chain of fuel for the airplanes, it's no longer coming from far, far away. That probably had to go on a container ship, which emitted even CO2 on its way over to the airplane that will then emit again CO2 as it consumes the, the the gas. But in this case, green hydrogen can be created on site, emitting no CO2 in its production. And then the plane itself can then fly, emitting no CO2. And so what we're working on right now is mass producing our electrolyzers so that we can then bring down the cost of green hydrogen.
1: Now, I've heard you on a few other talks um, mention these subsidies that um, the oil industry gets and somehow these are affecting how competitive hydrogen is? Like how would removing subsidies in oil have any effect on green hydrogen?
3: I mean, I was just looking at the numbers, right? Because when you, when you see how much subsidies are being allocated to fossil fuels, it always shocks me. Uh, from 2019 to 2020, the G20 countries and their development banks provided at least $55 billion US dollars per year for international public finance of oil, gas, and coal. Wow. So the fossil fuel finance is two times more than the support for clean energy, which averaged around only 29 billion per year. Okay. So there's a distortion in the market, and um, the prices of fossil fuels are artificially low. They're artificially low because there are either tax breaks on the consumption side or subsidies on the production side. And so it's not an equal- level playing field, because the prices of fossil fuels are artificially low, and then the price of green hydrogen looks high, but only because it's a fair price, but you can, there's no fair competition between the two. So that's, that's a big holdback, let's say. However, to bring in a bit of optimism to say, OK, yeah, it might look dire, and it might look like we're so far, but actually, you know, when you look at um, the hydrogen produced from our systems and when you place them uh, in Thailand, for example, where renewable electricity is abundant, and if you have a project that is producing more renewable electricity than it needs, then there's excess electricity, and the excess electricity would otherwise be wasted. And so when you're going to use this excess electricity to power the electrolyzers, then that cost of green hydrogen can actually be cheaper than the cost of fossil fuels. Damn. So there are places in the world where the cost of green hydrogen can already be cheaper than fossil fuels
1: do you have a date in your head do you have a timeline where you go now we are in the space where hydrogen is making the impact that it needs to make on co2 and our energy needs do do, are you guys working towards a save the world by 2030 because that's our number currently here
3: Right, I, I think that by 2026, we're going to see a lot of change in the electrolyzer space. And that's when it's game on, on a global scale. Mm. So that would be the date where I think from 2026 to 2030, there's going to be this exponential growth. And um, it's going to be a really interesting space to to keep an eye on. And NAVTR is going to play a huge role in that.
0: Do you know what is exciting about her story is that it doesn't sound sci-fi. It just says we've got this stuff going through the pipes and it's bad. And then we're going to have this other stuff going through the pipes and it's good. Mm. She's connecting the dots and it feels really, really near. Did she say 2026? I mean, that that's is, close. That is close.
1: It's, that's an exciting number to look at because a lot of times where people say that scary word decades and then in your head you hear the voice going, <laughs> we don't have the time. <laughs> uh, that's what the little voice in my head
0: sounds like. She won the Earthshot Prize for Energy, you know, Prince William's Earthshot Prize last year,
4: mm-hmm. which means that
0: not only do they get a chunk of funding, but they also get access to all the system. You know, so they get governments watching, they get technology people. She's got the science nailed, right? She can make the hydrogen happen, Mm. but she needs the system to change around her. And it feels like that is what is beginning to change and so fast.
1: With all these technologies, it always takes a long time, but then you hit that point where the growth is a little bit more exponential and it feels like we're there kind of with hydrogen where mm, big money starts salivating a little bit and starts throwing it at companies. So let's hope she gets the billions that she needs. I'll even, you know... I'll chip in two or billions that you give her and uh, together we will be some initial investors.
0: Well, well, should we wait and see what the next guest says? And then we'll work out who we give our billion to.
1: Okay, fair enough.
0: Because I, I, th- I think it's important to be thorough,
1: don't you? Yeah, let's see, let's see the playing field where our money will go. Because,
0: uh, because we have one more guest. I think this is about as exciting as science gets, right? Because it's literally magic. This next guest makes stars in her office. Yes, stars
1: and planets. I mean, like, this was such a fascinating conversation. She talks about nuclear fusion versus nuclear fission. Apparently, fission is what we're currently doing, which is not the best way. Or at least fusion is even better because it's greener and almost infinite.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is why it made the news and why everyone is so excited about it. It is a step in the right direction towards pretty limitless clean energy. So complete and utter genius. And the genius we got to talk
1: to was Dr. Tammy Ma, who was one of the lead scientists working on this huge nuclear fusion breakthrough. She is talking to us from Livermore, California, and uh, she began by explaining how it actually works.
4: So fusion is the reaction that powers the sun and the stars. Um, It actually also is responsible for creating most of the elements that we know of by fusing Bigger and bigger atoms together is a way to think about it. But what we basically do is we use um, hydrogen, which is the lightest element. Uh, The first one in the periodic table, if you remember back to to high school chemistry or physics.
1: And the most abundant gas.
4: It is very abundant, exactly. um, Someone reads. Um, and and then um, we actually use heavy hydrogen, so deuterium and tritium. Um, so, But they are forms of hydrogen. And the idea is we use lasers to smash those atoms together. And when we fuse deuterium and tritium, what comes out on the other side is a helium nucleus, which is the second element on the periodic table. Turns out that helium nucleus actually weighs a little bit less than our deuterium and tritium did. And so that difference in mass goes into an equation we, we all know really, really well, actually, Einstein's equation, E equals mc squared, where m is that mass, and you're multiplying by c squared. C is the speed of light, which we know is an enormous number. And so even if it's just a tiny, itty-bitty amount of mass, you get a huge amount of energy out. Um, so what we are actually trying to do is demonstrate Einstein's equation in the laboratory, And with that, it's a very clean, potentially limitless energy source if we can harness it correctly. Top officials at the Department of Energy just announced a
3: history-making scientific achievement, accomplishing, albeit briefly, a decades-long quest to harness fusion, the energy that powers the sun. This is one of the most impressive
0: scientific feats of the century, and this is more than 60 years in the making. I have so many questions. I finished physics, but I didn't finish chemistry. I wish you'd been teaching me. I have to say, I'm a terrible teacher, but thank you. So, is, is fusion totally clean?
4: Yeah. So, what we're doing is fusion, nuclear fusion, rather than fission, um, which is the conventional way we we um, when we say nuclear power plants of today, they are fission power plants. So, you take a heavy element and you break it down, and that. It works, right? You we, we can get clean energy from fission. Um, however, because it is a heavy element, there are also waste products that are difficult to deal with. And so that's, that's the difference between fission and fusion. And fusion, you can actually, if you can make it work, you can get a lot more energy than even fission. There is no carbon anywhere in the equation. It is safe um, and it is clean.
1: And the lasers themselves, I mean, like you said, it's high power. How, how are the lasers powered?
4: Uh, the lasers, uh, currently the lasers are powered off of the electrical grid, right? Um, so right now what we're doing is, is fundamental scientific research. We're not generating electricity yet. Eventually, when we can demonstrate a lot more energy out than we put in, then yeah, you can, you can run the power plant off of itself.
1: Use fusion to make fusion.
4: Use fusion to make fusion, exactly. Um, but for the moment, we're, we're pulling off the electrical grid.
1: How long do you see this technology is starting to be used on national grids? Because we, we're obviously running on the types of timelines where we're like, we need real solutions in the next five, 10 years. Where does your optimism sit?
4: It's, it's a good question, and it's a difficult one to answer.
1: Elon Musket.
4: Elon Musket, yeah, I'm not quite as crazy. Um, <laughs> um, you know, uh, what we were able to do last December was generate three units of energy out for two units of energy in, right? However, we need about 100 times more than that in order to make a functioning fusion power plant that works um, because it's got be, to be energetic enough that, like you said, it has to feed back on itself to keep itself running and be economical to feed out to the grid. So there's still a good amount of science and technology that needs to be developed to get to that point. So we don't want to promise that it'll be tomorrow, that we can have everything going. It takes time. And it really depends on the investment and support that we have from our governments. Um, And then there's private companies coming on the scene as well that are trying to commercialize, help commercialize Fusion. Um, So it's really a question of overall investment and will, and we need to build up the workforce. Um, So it will probably, in all honesty, still be decades before you see Fusion powering your home. However, we can speed that up if we have enough support and we, we put our, our collective will behind it. I mean, why would you not? It's, it's such an incredibly exciting
0: potential breakthrough, more than any I've heard or seen about in, in the climate space. Do you get any sense of any resistance? Is there any reason other than time and effort and resource that this isn't going to happen?
4: I mean, there, there's always skeptics. Um, it is, it's a big challenge. And anytime there is a difficult uh, problem or challenge ahead of you. There will be people that say, "Why are we spending money on this when there are there are other solutions too?" Right? There's there's wind power, there's solar power, um, there's other renewables that we could rely on and that can help be part of the final portfolio of energy that we would need to feed a growing world. Right? And frankly, those technologies exist today, so it's very easy for people to visualize how we can use existing technologies. It's much harder to visualize a future when it's it's technologies that haven't been developed yet. But the the potential advantages are enormous. It's clean, it's abundant, you know, you can place essentially fusion power plants anywhere. You're not reliant on a particular, you know, geological environment. Yeah, right. Like windy or hot. Exactly. You don't need the sun to shine or the wind to blow at a certain speed, right? Um, but it will take Time and it will take investment, and there's always risk involved in that. That's why the
0: musking it thing, musking it up, is so important, right? He says we're going to Mars, and that's clearly bollocks. (laughs) I'm I'm with you. I'm not giving you my billions because that this sounds like it's got a shot. I
4: will take them. Thank you. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Can I dig into the human story a little bit? Mm. Of course. Uh, How many people are at the facility? You say it's a big facility.
4: It's about six or seven hundred currently.
0: Amazing. And how long have you been working on this challenge?
4: I've been here about 12 years working on this. Wow. Yeah. But of course, standing on the shoulder of of thousands of people who have been doing it since the 60s. I, I was curious, what are the operating conditions that have created success?
0: Because that—that that is, I mean, tw- I I can't focus for barely 12 minutes. Focusing for 12 years on this immense breakthrough. I'm just really curious as to what, what kept people going. Is it curiosity? Is it about climate, or is it just pure
4: scientific endeavor? Yeah, it's a little bit of everything. Um, I, think, I think folks that work here truly do believe in the potential of fusion, um, not only for the clean energy potential, but also there's a bunch of other different experiments, you know, we can do that that satisfy our intellectual curiosity as well. I mentioned that we generate stars, essentially, you know, in the laboratory. We can also generate astrophysical phenomena, like supernova or the, the cores of giant planets. So, you know, <laughs> rather than waiting for something to happen out in space and observing it, we can just generate it and, and diagnose it, watch it as it happens, right? I'm just really giggling at the idea that one day accidentally someone might build Jupiter and it's, oh, shit. <laughs> like, yeah. We <we've>, bust <laughs>
0: all the windows because we accidentally made a massive... Bomb. Well,
4: actually, <laughs> um, you know, um, some of my colleagues did actually generate conditions similar to, to Jupiter. And what they found was it, the core is diamond, the core of Jupiter is diamond.
1: Oh, my gosh.
4: Right? So, and like, how how do you know that? Because we we did it in the laboratory. We could see the way the materials reacted similar to Jupiter. And so you can, in you know, you can infer. Oh, my God. You must have so much fun. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> what should we make today? <laughs> We're going to make Venus.
1: <laughs> the rest of life is disappointing. Everything else is disappointing. This is the worst part of her day is talking to us dum-dums. no not at all after creating diamond planets
4: I
0: I mean she is so nice (laughs) and so clever
1: I know I don't No, no, but what I do know is it's incredible what they're capable of doing, and it's amazing that we have this green technology that's going to possibly change the game.
0: I mean, can you imagine? Don't you think, though, that this whole episode has given us the overarching narrative that we do have technologies to make clean energy, like the goal says, that can power the planet forever, which is brilliant. We just need to really work on people's mindsets and, and maybe I think speed it up. That's, that's the other message I got. All of these things are doable if people set their mind to it and if we hurry up. Yeah, I'm, I'm really uplifted by those three stories. I also found it enjoyable seeing you show off your um, scientific knowledge, which crept in quite a bit.
1: I love science. I really, I really do. I just was really bad at it. I'm just a fan. You know what? That's what I am. I'm on the sidelines of science with my my massive finger, you know, in the air going, woo, science! Hydrogen bonds! (laughs) That's who I am. I'm just a male cheerleader for these wonderful female um, scientists. That's who I am. Just in my little tutu, cheering them on.
0: (laughs) 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 So should we... um... Shall we wrap up the episode with a look at what have we learned and what can we do to help achieve clean energy in a better world? Are you ready to save the world in 30 seconds, Loiso?
1: Born ready. Counting down three, two, one.
0: Let's go. Clean energy is possible. Totally possible if we change our mindsets and we all need to welcome the new and the shiny technology.
1: And renewable where we can
0: you can suck all the dirty carbon out of the sky.
1: Don't think that means we should keep polluting, though. We got to do both: take out and uh, stop. Yep, yep.
0: If you see a petition against fossil fuel subsidies, now you know what they are. Sign it
1: and um, move to
0: Iceland. I think Gabrielle said that. Can we all move to Iceland and I live in a hut?
1: Think it's, build a hut. <laughs> well, time's up, and I think we. I think just on those notes alone, I think we're doing great.
0: Yeah. But if you want to find out more, go to globalgoals.org and you can click on Goal 7 or Goal 9, where you'll find a whole load more great tips on how to get involved. I've been your co-host, Loissa Mattinga. And I've been Gail Galley. See you next time.
1: An Idiot's Guide to Saving the World is an Audi production made in collaboration with Project Everyone. The producers are Yolaine Goffin, Ellie Winter-Taylor and Eli Block. The executive producer is Elie DiMartino. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, share on your socials and leave a review. It helps others find us. And the more people find us, the more people are saving the world.